You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, I hope that you all have had a great Thanksgiving. I know I'm coming in today a couple of pounds heavier than I was last week, and so, uh, but I hope you have had a really wonderful week. And uh, today we are going to take step three. This is uh, part three or kind of week three of the set of sermons that we're in the middle of right now called Disciple. And uh, let me just start by refreshing you on the definition we have been using of a disciple. It'll be on the screen for you. A disciple is someone who is becoming more like Jesus in all of life through the power of the Spirit. A disciple is someone who's becoming more like Jesus in all of life through the power of the, the Spirit. And if you want to know just the simplest way we could say, what is it that we do around here? As a church, what is it that we do? Uh, the simple way we try to say that is, we together as a church family, we enjoy Jesus and we make disciples. That, that's what we do. We enjoy Jesus and we make disciple, disciples. A couple of weeks ago when we started this set of sermons, we began just by saying that if all this place is, that this building is, is a home for this church family, a place that we can enjoy kind of together, if that's all this building is, then this building is a waste. Because this building was never meant to be just a home. It was meant to be one part home and one part base for mission, but one part a base from which we get to launch our lives out into the world to get about the work that Jesus has called us to do and, and to be about. And in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus sort of defines that job for the church. He tells us what it is that we're to be about, and the job that he has given us as a church is to make disciples, to, to make disciples. In Matthew 28, there's no footnote that says, and that's just for a few of you. I, it's not really for all, it's just for a few of my disciples, maybe for a few of the professionals. It, it's just for those people. I just really mean that they're to make disciples. He doesn't say that. He's saying to all of his disciples, if you're a disciple of Jesus, as a disciple, Jesus is looking at you and saying, now get about the work of making disciples. Disciples make disciples. And let me just remind you that we, we really have nothing better to do with our lives. Think about all the things going on in your life. You've got nothing better to do with your life than to make disciples. I often think I have a lot of other things that would be better to do. There's a lot of things that are tempting to, to get about and to do. Those things are those things. Those things would feel better to do. But we all need to allow the 70 or 80 year old version of us talk to the current version of us to remind us that there is nothing more valuable. You have nothing better to do in your life than to make disciples and to invest your life into other people so that they can meet Jesus and grow up in Jesus. We've got nothing better to do as a church than, than to make disciples. And I don't know what that looks like in your life right now. So it, it, there's just no way in a preaching moment like this where it's general counsel, there's just no way that we could in a cookie cutter way say for everyone in the room, disciple making ought to look like X. There's just no way to do that. But every disciple in this room needs to have a clear answer to that. In this season, and at this moment in my life, this is what disciple making looks like. It's, it's to these people. It's, it's in this area. This is what it looks like right now. We all need a clear answer to the question, what does disciple making look like right now in my life? And we just we would pray that every person who calls Stonegate home would have a crew, two or three people, four people that you're looking at right now, that you've circled and said, 
I am giving my life to helping them meet Jesus and mature in Jesus, to help them grow up and become all that God would have them be. We have nothing better to do than make disciples. Now, if you were here last week, it was week two, and Jimmy took the first step in creating some clarity around three words in our definition of a disciple. If you look up on the screen again, let me remind you, a disciple is a person who's becoming more like Jesus in all of life through the power of the Spirit. We need some clarity around the words all of life. That's a really big banner, right? Like in saying we want to become more like Jesus in everything, it's so expansive and big that if we're not careful, it's actually going to say nothing for us. So, so we want to be clear as a church, what are those particular areas underneath all of life that we corporately are pursuing? Like when we think as a church and we evaluate, are we making disciples? What are the particular areas within that big banner of all of life that we are paying like special attention to? that we are giving particular energy and effort into pursuing these particular ways that we want to become more like Jesus. So, so that's what we're trying to do now. That's what Jimmy started last week. What we're trying to do over the next few weeks is to give some attention to those particular areas that, that we're pursuing underneath that banner of all of life. And, and here are those five areas. We've got these five icons that kind of serve as our shorthand language to talk about the five areas that we're giving particular attention to. And here they are. Number one, a disciple enjoys Jesus. This is what Jimmy talked about last, last week. And didn't he do a great job, by the way? Such a gifted uh, communicator of the Word of God. I just really do thank God for him. But he started that last week. He, he kind of worked out for us, what does it mean for a disciple to enjoy Jesus? That's our first one. The second one, which we're going to spend some time on this morning, is a disciple needs the gospel. We, we never outgrow our need for the good news of Jesus. Thirdly, a disciple lives in community. Fourth, a disciple multiplies. And fifth, a disciple embraces risk. That's, that's kind of where we are and where we're headed over the next few weeks. So today I want to I take that second icon. A disciple needs Jesus, and I want to just work that out, think that through with you this morning. And to do that, we'll just consider two questions. Two questions. What is the gospel? And who is the gospel for? What is the gospel and who is it for? So we'll start with what is the good news of Jesus? What is the gospel? If you uh, took a concordance, that's just a, a book that gives you words in the Bible, and then it shows you where those words show up. And if you took a concordance and you found the word gospel in that concordance, you would find that word shows up over 100 times in the New Testament. Now think about it. I mean, that's a lot, right? The Bible is giving a lot of real estate to that, that particular word. And there's a reason for that. It's all over the Bible, that word gospel. It's all over the Bible because it's the point of the Bible. Genesis to Revelation is telling one story called the gospel. That, that's what it's doing. That's what the Bible is about. That's what the Bible is for, to alert us and to announce uh, the gospel. Now, what, what does that word gospel mean? Uh, if you look at a, at a definition... Uh, that word at its core means good news. It's not good advice, it's good news. This is what the word gospel means, good news. Now it's interesting because like in today's sort of language, that word has been relegated primarily to a religious or sort of church context. That's where you're going to hear that word show up. But in the first century, it wasn't relegated to just like religious sort of context. In the Greek language, it was often used in reference to, like to, to battles, to, to military sort of moments. So when the battle had been won, the winning general would send back someone called an evangelist, 
That's the person he would send back to, to the city to announce a gospel. He would announce good news that the victory ha- had been won, that, that they had just won this particular ba- battle. That, that's how that, that word sort of got traction, how it was used in kind of the common vernacular in the first century. So picture the scene. This is how the word gospel would show up in, in first century language. If you picture this scene, the city sends out its, its best men to fight for their freedom. Now, everything is on the line in that moment, right? Like if, if, those, if those men lose, if that army loses this particular battle, then all is lost. That, that city is about to be ransacked and, and overtaken. So everything is on the line. And so when the city would send out their best men, their army to fight on behalf of the city, the, the city would then eagerly await word. Now, picture the moment you're in the city, you're eagerly awaiting word of what's happened in the battle. And on the horizon, you see a man running back to the city. You swing open the the city gates, and then the whole city gathers around, and they await word from this messenger. And in that moment, good advice is much different than good news. Good advice is a whole different category of thing as as good news. So, So here's how it would work out. If the army had lost, then the city would get good advice. And that would come from the military strategists. The, the, the good advice would sound like this. Um, archers, you need to go there. Infantrymen, you go there. Everybody grab your weapons and let's fight for our lives. That's good advice. But if the army had won, they don't get good advice, they get good news. The evangelist would, would stand in the city center and announce not what the people need to do, He's not saying, hey, get your weapons and fight for your life. This is what you need to do. That's good advice. He wouldn't announce what the people needed to do. He would announce good news of what has been done, that the battle has been won. The victory is sure. Your freedom, because of that army's work, is now secure. That's good news. That's what the evangelist would stand in the uh, the city center and announce. Now, think about every way of approaching God that's out there. So if you go to different people, different parts of the world, there's just a lot of different ways that people approach God. But every system of belief outside of biblical Christianity, if you boil it down, is good advice. It's good advice. It's saying, essentially, get your weapons, and you need to go to war, and you're going to have to fight for it. So you need to work hard enough, do enough good things, and maybe in the end, it's going to work out okay between you and God. It's good advice. The Bible, though, is not announcing good advice. It's not announcing good advice of what we have to do to reach up to God. That The scriptures announce good news of what God has done to reach down to us. That that's, what, that's what the Bible is about. Genesis to Revelation. This is what it's doing. This is what it's, it's alerting us to. It's announcing that reality. Now, then comes the question of well, what is the good news of Jesus? What is the message that the Bible announces? If you want to just, you know, summarize the good news of Jesus in four words, you could summarize it like this. It's Jesus in our place. Jesus in our place. Jesus lived in our place. He perfectly fulfilled every last command of God. Like when God says do something, Jesus did it all. Can you believe that? He did every single thing that God the Father said do. And everything that that God the Father said don't do, Jesus didn't do. He perfectly fulfilled everything. Every last law of God, everything that God the Father said do, Jesus did. So he lived in our place, and then he died in our place. Our sin came crashing down on him. Jesus' perfect record of righteousness was then credited to us. 
So he not only lived in our place, he died in our place. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, showing God's power over Satan's sin and death. That's what the scriptures announce. Jesus in our place, the good. And by the way, it announces that news with, with a ton of joy, right? I mean, th this is what the Bible's about. This is what it's announcing, that Jesus has fought our battle. He's won our victory. And now, for all those who will turn from their sin and throw their life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus... Everyone who will do that, they'll enjoy Jesus' victory forever. That's the good news of Jesus. This is what the Bible is about. It's what the Bible is announcing. It's what the Bible is acclimating us to. It's not good advice. It is great news. That's the good news of Jesus. Now comes the question of, well, who is that for? If that's the good news of Jesus, if that's the gospel, then, then who is the gospel for? Now, take a moment for you to answer that question. How would you answer that? Who is the good news of Jesus for? Many rightly say the good news of Jesus is for those who are outside of Jesus, for, for those who are not, um, who have not put their faith in Jesus. Many would rightly say the gospel is for non-Christians, right? And that is true. The gospel is for those who are outside of Jesus. The, the gospel is, the good news of Jesus, Jesus in our place is the door through which Every person has to enter if they're going to be right with God. If they're going to be rescued from the wrath of God. This is the only door you can walk through that gets you to that place, being right with God. So, so in that way, the good news of Jesus is for, for people who are not yet Christians, right? The, the gospel is the door that we have to walk through. The good news of Jesus, putting our faith in Jesus, is the, is the door that we have to walk through to walk into the incredibly bright future that Jesus has planned for everyone's and his, uh, every one of his sons and daughters, right? This is the way into the kingdom of God. It, it comes through the good news of Jesus. So it's right to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for people who have not put their faith in Jesus. And let me just stop here for a moment because that is likely some in the room this morning that you have been kicking the tires on this. You've kind of been investigating Jesus for a while, but you've never put your faith in Jesus. And, and I think it's just important that you know this morning, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. It, it is for you to put your faith in Jesus so that you can be reconciled with God made right with God, rescued from the wrath of God. And we just want to look at you this morning and say there is no morning like this morning to do that. God stands here this morning with just arms wide open and ready to welcome you in. I oftentimes think about the good news of Jesus like this. It's God coming to us and saying, can, can we make this trade? This is the trade I want to propose. Would you be humble enough to open up your hands and to give me your sin? Would you be so humble as to do that? To allow me to take your sin. And then when we say yes to that, Jesus looks back at us and says, okay, now here's the second step. Uh, could I make the, the second part of the deal? Would you be so humble as to let me give you my perfect record of righteousness? I, I'll take your sin from you and then I'll give you perfect righteousness in return for taking your sin. Would you be humble enough to take that deal? I mean, th this is the good news. It almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? I mean, th this is what God offers us. And it is, if you're here today and you've never taken the deal, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, God is just looking at you today saying, I am ready today to make that deal with you. Like, I, I, wanna, I want the transaction to happen today. Put your faith in Jesus today. Some of us just need to hear that. We need to take that decisive step for Jesus today. The gospel is for you. 
Now, here's where it gets interesting, and this is for many people, uh, just the gospel gap that's in our life, and I'll just use myself as an illustration of this. For most of my life, I believed that the gospel was only for people who were outside of Jesus, only for for non-Christians, that the gospel was for and only for getting people into the kingdom of God. That's how I just have always thought about how the good news of Jesus is used, what, what it's for. And once you're in the kingdom of God, like once you know Jesus and you've been rescued by Jesus and you've been made right with God, then you kind of move on to other things in the Christian life. This is kind of how I viewed it. And I don't think I was ever taught that, you know, sort of explicitly. It was just sort of the implicit sort of, I just caught it by just watching and observing. I, in most of my church experience, the only way the good news of Jesus was ever talked about, ever applied to people's life, ever, ever sort of like personally brought down onto like the, you know, onto the ground where it could be applied to a human life, was maybe at the end of a service where we're presenting Jesus to a person who doesn't know Jesus. That's, that's kind of the ways that I would hear it talked about. It was only talked about in reference to people who were far from God, who needed to be brought near to God. It brought into the kingdom of God. That's the only way I heard, you know, heard it talked about. So I naturally just assumed by watching that, that the gospel was only for people who were not yet Christians. It was only for people who were outside of Jesus. Now, the only problem with that sort of way of seeing the good news of Jesus, the only problem with that is the Bible. That's the problem with it. It's just not the way the Bible talks about it. If you read the New Testament, here's what you're going to see really quickly. The good news of Jesus is both for non-Christians and Christians. I just want to say that just again, just so we can hear it really clearly this morning. The good news of Jesus is both for non-Christians and for Christians. Maybe we can say it this way. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a gospel graduate. There's never a moment in the New Testament where a person's like, you know what, I'm a Christian. I've kind of got this thing nailed. Let me move on to something a little bigger and brighter. I just, you just don't find that in the New Testament. There's no such thing as a gospel graduate. It, according to the New Testament, the gospel is God's means for justification. So, so it's the way that God deals with the penalty of our sin. Right? Justification is that, that moment that happens when we put our faith in Jesus, where we go from being unrighteous in the eyes of God to being righteous in the eyes of God, where our sin has been dealt with, the penalty of our sin has been dealt with, right? So the gospel is for that. The gospel is God's means for justification. It's how we're rescued from the wrath of God. It's how we're brought into right relationship with God. It is for people who need to meet Jesus for the first time. The gospel is for that. The problem, though, is that that is the primary and for many people the only way we think about the good news of Jesus, so when we think about the good news of Jesus, it's always, it's always looking back, and we always think like this. It's something that I needed back then. That, that's how most people look at it. That's the gospel gap. But according to the New Testament, the, the good news of Jesus is not only God's means for justification, it's also God's means for sanctification. It, it's like how God currently, like right now, saves us from the present power of sin in our life. Sanctification is just that ongoing, present work of God where he is conforming us into the image of Jesus, where he is making us more like Jesus in all of life. That's what sanctification means. And according to the New Testament, the good news of Jesus is God's means to do that. It it is how God grows us as a Christian. 
It's how God moves us forward in the Christian life. So so the good news of Jesus is not just something we needed in the past, past tense. It's also something that we need currently in the present tense. Now, I I just want to make sure we're, we're, we're getting a hold of that. The good news of Jesus is not just something we needed back then, but if you're a follower of Jesus, a disciple, the good news of Jesus is something you need right now presently. Listen to Tim Keller talk about this. He says it this way. The gospel is not just the ABC of Christianity. It is the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom of God. But the gospel is the way we make all progress in the kingdom of God. Now listen to this last phrase. He says, the good news of Jesus, the gospel, it is the solution to each problem. The key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. Look look at that last phrase again. It's the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. Now ask yourself the question, do, do you presently see the good news of Jesus like that? As the key to each closed door in your life? Like the solution to those problems, that ongoing sin in you, the solution to each problem, the power through all that resistance and through all those obstacles between you and godliness in your life? Do you see the good news of Jesus like right now in your life as as what you need to to progress through those things? Not not just your way into the kingdom of God, but your your way that you progress through the kingdom of God. Do Do you see the good news of Jesus like that? See, after we're rescued by Jesus, we don't move on to bigger and brighter things. That's not the way the Christian life works. The Christian life works like this. We actually just move deeper and deeper and deeper into the biggest and brightest thing that Paul calls in Ephesians 3, the unsearchable riches of Christ. We just move deeper and deeper into that big and bright thing called the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the Christian life. We never outgrow our need for the good news of Jesus. A disciple needs the gospel. Now, let me show you this in 2 Peter chapter 1. This is a really rich section of scripture. I wish we had more time to to work it out this morning. But but let me just give you the one big idea in this passage that I want you to see. So think about the flow of this passage. Starting in verse 5, Paul offers some encouragement. Paul is a pastor talking to people that he loves, and he's encouraging them. And this is what he tells them in verse 5. Paul offers this encouragement, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, all of those things are the sort of things that we would want to grow in, aren't they? I mean, I doubt anyone in the room is thinking, you know what? I've got plenty of self-control. Just look at my Thanksgiving week. Seriously, I've got, I've got the self-control thing nailed. N- nobody's saying that, are they? Nobody is saying, you know what? I've got more steadfastness, more patience than I'll ever need. I think I've got that nailed. Nobody's saying that. We all are looking at those sort of character qualities, that, that, that sort of godly formation of character in us, and we're all saying, I mean, we could all use a lot more of that. And and what Peter is talking about here, he's just describing the sort of comprehensive change that God is about producing in a human heart. These are the sort of things that right now God is 
working out in your heart, God is working out in my heart, every one of his disciples' hearts. Then you get to verse 8, and in verse 8, Paul presents the problem. The problem. Look at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Peter is a pastor. He's writing to people that he loves. He's encouraging them toward this sort of all of life godliness. Like, add on to your life brotherly affection and love and steadfastness and godliness and self-control. Add these things to your life. And the reason that he's encouraging them like this is because he knows that many of them don't have those qualities operating in their life right now. That, that many of their lives are void of those sort of character qualities that would be the marks of godliness. He, he knows that about these people that he's pastoring. And he knows that because those qualities are not there in many of their lives, that many of them are living unfruitful and ineffective lives. That's just kind of a catch-all of like, I, our lives just get deformed and distorted. We're just, we're just not bearing the sort of fruit that we should be bearing, Right? So, so Peter is looking at them and he's saying that the problem is some of you, uh, you know, you, you should be growing, but, but you're not growing. Uh, you should be progressing in your life with God, but you're not progressing. You should be displaying the fruit of the Spirit in your life, but you're not doing that. You should be loving your wives or loving your husbands, but you're just not doing that in the way that I've called you to do it. You, you should be thriving as a single, but for whatever reason, you're just not right now. It's, it's just unfruitful and ineffective. You should be submitting to your parents, but you're not. You should be content, but you're not. You should be less anxious right now in your life, but, but you're not. It's just ineffectiveness and unfruitfulness. There should be like this joyful willingness to lay down your lives for other people, to love your neighbor, but, but those sort of things just aren't in your life. Peter's looking at these people and saying the problem is there's, there's a lack of fruitfulness. There's a lack of effectiveness right now in your life. One commentator says it this way. Peter is looking at these people and he's just saying to these people that you're just not experiencing the full range of fruit and faith. He's talking to a group of Christians, a group of, of Jesus' disciples that are in need of great change in their life. Now, let's just stop here and linger over that. These sort of problems that Peter is addressing, just a lack of self-control, a lack of, of steadfastness and patience and godliness and brotherly affection and, and a lack of love of neighbor, th those aren't unique to those people that he's talking about. Th those same problems wrap their arms around every one of us, don't they? I mean, who in here is saying, I've got all that nailed? Like, the fruit of the Spirit, it's just, I can see it all in my life, and I, just, I don't know if I could even stand any more of it. I, no, nobody's saying that, are they? I mean, we, we all have problems. We all have dysfunction in us. We all have these sinful tendencies in us. Somewhere and in some way, there is something wrong with every one of us, and we are all in desperate need of change. Now, the question becomes, how do we address what's wrong in us and in others? Now, think about that. How do we address that? What, what are we going to say to that person that's ineffective and unfruitful? think about the last time a friend came to you and it's obvious that they are ineffective and unfruitful. How do you address that in them? If you're a parent in the room, you probably had like 38 opportunities to do this yesterday, right? Your, your kid comes to you and there's something in your child that needs correcting. How do you address them, right? What is your approach to them in that moment? What are you, you going to say to them in that moment? There, there are the sort of common cultural strategies that we use, 
Like some of those like common cultural strategies, one is fear. So we look at people and say, um, essentially fear is just bringing the consequences to the table, right? So we just, we're looking at people and in some way, shape or form, we are saying, if you keep doing that, your life is gonna be destroyed. Like if you keep doing that, you're gonna end up in jail someday. It's gonna go bad for you. You're gonna have that consequence and this, con- it just, it's just not gonna go good for you. It's, it's fear. Like if you keep doing that, these bad things are gonna happen. So that's one strategy our culture uses. Another strategy our culture uses is shame. I, I can't believe you just did that. Can you believe you just did that? I am so disappointed in you. You're, you're better than that, right? It just, we, we heap shame on people in an effort to try to get them kind of up and going. Another strategy we use is just technique. This is why, this is why Barnes & Noble has a huge self-help section. It's just, it's just technique. If we can find a new method or a new thing, then that'll surely be the thing that'll fix our problem. So we just think if we can just kind of heap a little bit of sh- uh, fear on people, a little bit of shame on people, and then we can just tell people not to do that and to do this, the problem's gonna get fixed. How's that working for you, right? How's it working in your own life? That worked very well in my life, right? I mean, th- those strategies just don't work. So let's watch Peter. Peter is a gospel-drenched pastor addressing people that he loves And watch what he says and ask yourself the question, is this the way that you think? Is this the way that you see problems and people and issues and situations? Like, do you see it like Peter sees it? So think about the situation. The people are ineffective. They're unfruitful. And then this is what he says, verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted. This is his diagnosis of the problem. This is going to be a solution. You're so nearsighted that he is blind. There's the problem. What we're blind. To what? Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, isn't that an interesting way of addressing a lack of fruitfulness and ineffectiveness in a human life? Peter's addressing them in their, in their, just think of it as bad behavior, right? He's just addressing them in a way where they need correction. They're unfruitful, ineffective, but he doesn't go with fear and shame. Now, why doesn't he go with fear and shame? Because Peter knows that fear and shame can get a person going, but they can't keep a person going. Fear and shame, are, they will never last as like the sort of long-term lasting motivators. They just, they just can't do that, primarily because they leave the human heart unscathed. They don't address the human heart. Right? They, they, just, they don't work as lasting motivators. Peter knows that. So rather than using fear and shame or just this technique or that technique, Peter looks at them and says, here's the problem. You're blind. Now, remember, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to people like disciples of Jesus. He, and he says, you're blind. This is the problem. You're blind. You've, you forgot, you, you, you've forgotten the good news of Jesus. You've just stopped bringing to bear the good news of Jesus on your soul. You've forgotten that you have been cleansed from your sins. You've forgotten that you have been forgiven. You've forgotten that you've been brought into the family of God. You've forgotten that you have a good, good father and his name just happens to be God. Like that's your dad. You've forgotten about all the benefits that Jesus has secured for you. You've forgotten that God loves you. And even more that he likes you. Like you've just, you've forgotten, you've forgotten these things. You've forgotten that all of God's promises are now a big yes to you because of Jesus. You've forgotten that if God is for you, who in the world could be against you? You've, you're just not bringing the good news of Jesus to bear on your heart. 
This is how Peter addresses the problem. Now, let me just tease out Peter's solution here in a couple different ways. Essentially, what Peter is teaching us here is that our problems, like all of our problems, are gospel problems. In some way, shape, or form, all of our problems are gospel problems. Think about the areas in your life right now where you are praying for change. If you're like me, you've got plenty of those. Where you know that the good news of Jesus, just it, there needs to be change in you. Just those places in your life where those qualities that Peter is urging those people toward are missing in your life. P Peter is trying to help us see that those problems, that lack of like godly character formation, those sort of sinful sort of tendencies and treadmills that you find yourself in over and over and over again, Peter is reminding us that those problems are gospel problems. We're missing those sort of qualities because we're forgetting the good news of Jesus. Peter is reminding us that, yes, you have been saved from the penalty of your sin. The gospel has done that but you still need the gospel now to save you from the present power of sin in your life. He's reminding us of that. Uh, let me just put this quote up here by Tim Keller again and read it for you one more time. The gospel is not, this is, essentially this is the summation of what Peter is saying here. The gospel is not just the ABC of Christianity, it's the A to Z. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom of God, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom of God. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. I just want to ask you again, do you, do you, see, do you see your life like that? See, one of my hopes for us as a church is that we would, we would talk in a way that is like, just has the Bible like oozing out of it. That, that we would see in a way that is just, has the Bible that's forming the grid, that we would talk like the Bible, we would see like the Bible. And, and part of what we need to do this morning is just ask ourselves the question, is this, is this the way that we see? Do, do we see the good news of Jesus as the solution to each problem, the, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier? I can, in those areas in your life where you are wanting to see change, do you see that the good news of Jesus is what you're dependent upon, what you need to see that change happen? Do you, do you, are you living with this sort of awareness that as a disciple, you need the good news of Jesus, that all of our problems are gospel problems? Now, by the way, I am just like tiptoeing into this this morning. I want to give you just encouragement. If, if you want to take another step into this, we've got several resources right out, out here in our bookstore. One is gospel fluency. That would help you take a good step toward this and just learning and growing in this. Another one is gospel-centered life. It's out there in our bookstore. Another one is you can change. You can get all those on Amazon. You can get some of them in our bookstore over there. I was just, this is just a primer this morning. I just want to encourage you to, to take steps toward this. Like seeing the good news of Jesus as the solution to your problems, the key to each closed door, the power through every obstacle. Our problems are gospel problems. All of our problems are gospel problems. Here's another thing that if we're just condensing down what Peter is saying that we could say. Not just that our problems are gospel problems, but our growth is linked to our gospel grasp. Our growth is linked to our gospel grasp. Now, this is implied in 2 Peter chapter 1. It's implied in what Peter is saying. Essentially, Peter is saying, 
you've got to remember, you've got to grasp the good news of Jesus if you're going to be fruitful and effective in your life. Uh, But it's implicit in this text. But in Colossians chapter 1, it's explicit. It's very clear in the way that Paul talks about it in Colossians chapter 1. So it's going to be on the screen for you. I just want you to take a look at this. Colossians chapter 1. Starting in verse 3, Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing as it does among you, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul makes a direct correlation in Colossians that there is a direct, this direct correlation between your growth in Jesus on one hand and your grasp of the gospel on the other hand. So, so in, in Colossians 1, Paul is using the language of bearing fruit and growing. In 2 Peter 1, Peter is using the, the language of being fruitful and effective. But both of them are letting us see that if we're going to bear fruit and grow, if we're going to be fruitful and effective, it requires a hearing plus an understanding of the good news of Jesus. Now, and I'm not, when I say understanding, I'm not just talking about like we mentally agree with it. I'm talking about that deep down in your heart experiential understanding. Like the good news of Jesus is becoming real to you, more real today than it has ever been. That is, that is the sort of gospel grasp that then leads into growth in our Christian life. This is how we progress in the kingdom of God. So to, to help you see this, let me just put it in a picture for you. It's going to be up on the screen. This is a chart that we have uh, used periodically just to help see how our grasp of the gospel relates to our growth in Jesus. So take a look at the chart. From left to right is time. So it's just your time with God, time around these sort of things. So it's just time, left to right. The, the dot is your conversion. That's that decisive moment where you put your faith in Jesus and you're rescued and made right with God. Now think about the moment of your conversion. Think about the moment you met Jesus. At that moment, we, uh, we really knew very, very little of God or the gospel. Like, you know, how, this is the great thing about Jesus. Like, it's not that you have to know a bunch of stuff to be rescued and made right with God. It's just kind of the bare minimum of Jesus in your place. God, here's my life. I'm giving it to you. And in that moment, Jesus loves to rescue. He promises to rescue in that moment. So if you think back to, to that moment of your conversion, if you're anything like me, you knew virtually nothing of God and virtually nothing of the good news of Jesus, just sort of the bare minimum requirements. But, but we just knew very little of what Paul calls the unsearchable riches of Christ, the, the good news of Jesus. It, it's like we, we took a step into the shallow end of the pool of, of the gospel, not knowing how deep the deep end goes. That's the moment of conversion. Now, as we progress in our life with God and as we grow in our life with God, that the top and bottom lines bring clarity to what happens. The, the top line um, shows our growing sense and our growing awareness of the holiness of God. 
It's not that God grows in holiness. God is who God is. It's our growing sense of and awareness of God's holiness. So as you progress in your life with God, you're going to have moments like Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6, where everything you thought about God, every, the, the ways that you saw God crumble around you and a new, more biblical version of God appears, a more holy, a more other, a, a more God-like picture of God appears. And you see God for more of who he is. That's a growing sense of the holiness of God. That should be happening as we grow in our Christian life and as we progress in our Christian life. That line on the top should be going up. God's holiness should be getting bigger and more expansive. And then you've got the bottom line. As we spend time around God, as we get to know more of God, we don't just have a growing sense of his holiness, but we also have a growing awareness of our sinfulness, of our sinfulness. It's funny for me to think back when I was saved as a seventh grader back in junior high, and and if somebody would have asked me, Rodney, how sinful are you? I had such a superficial understanding of how sinful I was. I mean, I just kind of generally still thought I was a pretty good guy. I mean, I would say really dumb things like this. How in the world can that guy do that? Like, what is his problem? I can't even figure this stuff out. And and if you were to ask me now uh, about my sinfulness, it my proclivity towards sin and the remaining sin in me, it shocks and horrifies me. When I think about the moment of a person doing a, it just, they just find themselves in a shocking moment of sin, I just don't say things anymore like, how, can't they figure this thing out? Like, what is wrong with them? Like, when I look at that, here's what I feel deep down in my soul under the right circumstances, in the right situation, I'm capable of that. I could do that. See, as we progress in our life with God, it's not just that his holiness grows, like our, our, our awareness of it grows, but also the awareness of our sinfulness grows. Like I, I can honestly say today that I am the biggest sinner I know because I am the worst sinner I know. I can honestly say that just a growing sense of my own depravity and that remaining sin in me. Now think about the top and bottom lines. They represent these huge gospel realities that God is perfectly holy and that holy God has a problem with our hopeless sin. We are sinful, he is holy. And do you know what happens as those two lines diverge, as those two lines get further and further apart? that the cross begins to loom larger and larger in our life. We start to see the cross of Christ with fresh amazement, with fresh awe, with fresh wonder that that God, Jesus in our place, could redeem a hopeless sinner like me. And you know what happens as the cross of Christ grows larger and larger in our life? Our affections for Jesus begin to explode. We begin to to have this new capacity in us to follow Jesus into hard places. One of the ways that we say it is like this. The larger the cross, the more Christ-like the life. Your Christ-likeness mirrors the size of your cross. Your growth is linked to your gospel grasp. We as people aren't changed by new resolutions. How did those work last year? We we aren't changed by new resolutions and another dose of willpower. We are changed by seeing the grace of God for us in the person of Jesus. 
That's how we change as human beings. It really is the, the, the key to the doors in front of us. It really is the way through the barriers and the obstacles in our life. Hey, and I'll just end with this short story. There's a story told from the Civil War days about a northerner who came down into the south and went to a slave auction and purchased a young girl. And as they walked away from the auction, the man turned to the little girl and said, Sweetheart, you're free to go. You're, you're free. And with amazement, she turned around and looked at him and said, do you mean that I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want to do? And, and he looked back and said, yeah, you're free to do whatever you want to do. It, do you mean I, I'm free to say whatever I want to say? He, he looks back, yeah, you're, you're free to say whatever you want to say. You mean I'm free to be whatever I want to be? Yeah, you're free to be whatever you want to be. And you mean I'm free to go wherever I want to go? And he just looks back and smiles and says, yes, you are now free to go wherever you want to go. And she looks back at the man and replied, well then, I guess I'll just go with you. Now that is a metaphor for how the good news of Jesus works in a human heart. The more we see the hopelessness of our situation that we were trapped, enslaved in our sin. And Jesus, our great rescuer, came to the slave auction and gave his life for ours. He gave his blood to purchase us out of our slavery, of, of that slavery of sin that, that keeps us bound and shackled. And then he looks at us after freeing us and says, now you're free to go wherever you want to go, do anything you want to do. But when we start to see that, that that's, that's, that's Jesus that in, in our sin, be, becoming our sin for us to free us. But when we begin to see Jesus like that with fresh awe and fresh wonder, do you know what we start to do in our life? What we start to look at Jesus and say, well then, if I'm free to go wherever I want, I guess, I guess I'll just go with you into those hard places, into that hard thing. I, I guess I'll just follow you wherever it is that you lead, Jesus. I am in with you. Pray with me, Stonegate. Father, I pray that today you would give us fresh wonder and fresh awe. God, that you would reacclimate our soul to our daily need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our daily dependence. Because we forget the gospel every day. God, we need the gospel every day. Help us, help us see that today. Give us fresh awareness today. Through the power of your spirit, personally apply Jesus in the ways that we need today, oh God. And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.